Welcome to episode 10 of Mental Health by TalkLink. Here's what's coming up. For someone that's anxious, when you hear the words mindfulness, it makes you even more anxious. Oh, why? (laughs) So you've got to find, I think because it's, for me, feeling anxious is safe. It's kind of my safety mechanism. So if I'm feeling calm, it's sort of like, oh no, I have to feel anxious. Otherwise, um, something bad's going to happen. I'm Rowan, and today's chat's a little more unique. The last two episodes have looked at the clinical side of depression and anxiety that can arise during or after having a baby known as perinatal depression and anxiety. Today we'll be hearing from Josie. She's going to share from her own personal experience and journey of struggling and managing anxiety and depression. Josie's now an ambassador for perinatal depression and anxiety, sharing her story online through her platform, Smiling After PND. Josie is featured on major publications, websites, and as a public presenter, visiting workplaces and institutions as she continues her quest to increase awareness and remove stigma. Today's podcast is brought to you by TalkLink. TalkLink is an online directory connecting young Australians with the right mental health practitioner. If you'd like to ask Josie a question, you can do so anonymously at talklink.com.au forward slash podcast. We'll do our best to answer it in a follow-up Q&A session. Okay, let's dive in. So Josie, I'm really looking forward to speaking with you today and finding out more about your experience with depression and anxiety, especially how it all came to the front after you had your kids, right? So why don't you take us back to the start? What exactly happened? So after years of therapy, (laughs) I realized that I'd actually lived with anxiety for most of my life and that was undiagnosed. So it was only after having the children and the, I guess the anxiety not being treated that the feelings of anxiety exacerbated and then turned into postnatal depression. But it's the, the, the umbrella term is perinatal anxiety and depression. So um, it's the perinatal period. So moment of conception through to 12 months of your child's life. And it was until four months after their birth that I was diagnosed. But I guess... Uh, the signs and symptoms mimicked the baby blues. And the baby blues is something that's widely recognised and widely talked about. It's, it's not really postnatal depressions, not as commonly accepted, unfortunately. We're getting there, definitely. Um, and so, you know, those sorts of feeling exhausted, even though you, you had the capacity to sleep, although I did have trouble sleeping, a low, a real feeling of low and lingering. Whereas with the baby blues, you tend to get teary and, and agitated and a feeling of overwhelm, but they dissipate over a couple of weeks. Postnatal depression lingers, it doesn't go away and the symptoms get worse the longer you leave it. Uh, loss of appetite, I was snappy. Um, I had trouble bonding with my babies because the depression was just a fog that got in between the two of us. Just feeling disconnected. So I could be in a room full of people and just feel like I was having an out-of-body experience. Yeah, just really intrusive thoughts, you know, um, just these thoughts of harm coming to both Leo and Lily and me not being there to save them and not telling anyone about how I was, th- what I was thinking or how I was feeling. Um, but it was only until my behaviour started to change that that's when things started to change because it's having those conversations that 
sort of made me start to think, wow, I, I'm feeling it, but may, yeah, maybe this is this is something bigger. This is not a normal part of parenting. So when you say intrusive thoughts, um, would you just be doing something and all of a sudden have this idea of harm to you or the baby? Like what does an intrusive pattern of thinking look like? Exactly. They start, it was, they, they start fleeting. Like you don't even recognize it when it starts. You know, we have so many thoughts throughout the day, thousands of thoughts. Um, but these are the ones that sort of linger. They hang on. So they start and then you don't think of anything and then you, because they start to remunerate, you kind of, they're ongoing. And so, um, you know, I don't know, these sorts of really scary thoughts that they, it's not real, but these, these thoughts are so vivid. They're, they're colourful, they're vivid, they're, they feel real. Um, and, but it's not true because it's just a thought. But are they violent? Are they dark? What makes them stand out? I think because you you know, I mean, that's isn't that the biggest worry about being a parent, losing your child? And so because that fear is so strong, those thoughts become really strong. And because they're a thought and they're not really happening, but you're thinking that it's real, that's where the th- they they don't match up. And they just go round and round. The less, the more, the more you hold them in your head and don't speak about them, the stronger they become. So it was until we start talking about it that they lose their power, because they're just thoughts at the end of the day. Did it build up for you and and sort of reach a point? And was that part of your realization that something was wrong, or was it just a gradual process? So I guess with those thoughts, again, I thought that that was a normal part of parenting, having that fear of loss of your child. But it was lingering. It, it impacted on my daily functioning. You know, I then began to isolate myself. I was too scared to even put Leo in the car or um, take Lily out for a walk because I was so afraid of something happening. And what I didn't realise was that I, in 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 a way I thought I was protecting them, but in fact I was shielding them away from this big, beautiful world that we have to experience. You know, I was yeah. shielding them from experiencing life and, and that's harmful, you know, um, not realising that, okay, I'm protecting them in my mind, but what am I denying my child? And so it's, it was really important that I got the help quickly. Yeah, so well-intentioned but harmful. Hmm. Yeah. And so what did that help look like for you? So the very first step was family and friends mentioning something. So it was as simple as, Jose, we've noticed this about you. We're really worried. Um, You know, perhaps you could speak to your GP. I'm sure that they might be able to help you. Uh, My sister-in-law knew about Panda and she said she showed me the website and all the helpful resources and the stories of recovery. And that really helped. I realized, oh, I'm not the only one. Wow, you can actually get treated for this. This is something, I don't, what parenting can look something different. So I went to the GP and I filled out a questionnaire. It's called an Edinburgh postnatal depression questionnaire. And that came back high for postnatal depression. And on that, I answered the questions honestly. And if it's one thing that I can get out there today is to please be honest in those questions because it gives the GP an idea of where you're at 
and what sort of treatment you might need. And so after that, that, that came back high, I was put on a script for antidepressants. I was given a mental health care plan. But it's a two-way thing, I think. So going into the GP's office, it's about how safe the GP makes you feel and mm. how helpful the GP comes across. So I went to a GP that knew me and um, that understood about postnatal depression and perinatal mental illnesses and so allowed me to put my guard down as much as I say being honest but if you're dismissed well you've lost that opportunity with that patient yeah and your experience with your GP was really positive you're explaining that that he recommended um, next steps being medicine exactly so starting on some antidepressants and a mental health care plan to get 10 sessions rebated by Medicare. And I guess also the capacity to check in. So it wasn't just, here's a script, here's your mental health care plan, here's a referral to see a psychiatrist so that your medication can be balanced, I guess, to make sure that, you know, it's the correct medication. But also saying, well, I want to check in with you. Let's make another appointment in a week. Um, and obviously you can come in sooner than that. And that just said, sh- said to me, I care about you. You know, I'm concerned for you. I want you to get better. And I know you will because you started this treatment plan. What antidepressants did you start taking? So I started Lexapro. And I know there's so many out there and it all just depends because, I mean, people may have had a mental health condition prior to having a baby so they already have a medication that sits well with them. It all just depends. There's so many out there. And that's the other great thing. There are so many treatments out there that are, that are available. It's just what works for you. So we had a GP in one of the conversations and um, Dr. Chris Files went into a lot of detail talking about selective serotonin reuptake inhi- inhibitors, which is the class mm-hmm. that Lexipro, I believe, belongs to, right? It's an yes. SSRI? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And in his experience... Um, they're extremely effective. What was your experience like once you started taking them? Oh, oh, they're a lifesaver. But I must say initially I, I did have side effects, so I'd never been on antidepressants before. And that's why there are mother baby units and that's why it was recommended that I see the psychiatrist and the GP and I had to have family around because I, it, 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 it exacerbated my suicidal ideation. Um, so that's not for everyone. Some people might have trouble sleeping or, or their appetite might change. But after they dissipate, and, and that's the thing, some people may stop because they're yucky side effects. But I, I sustained, I, I held on. I was positive and hopeful that they would work. And thankfully, after about two weeks, they subsided and the fog lifted. So the feeling of depression and anxiety is like a massive weight bearing you down on your shoulders. That's why... You have trouble getting out of bed and have trouble doing your daily activities because there's this dead weight on you. And then once all those side effects um, started to dissipate, the fog immediately lifted. Now, I don't know exactly what day that was, but I know the difference. I know that I felt the fog lift and I could really see Leah, I could really see Lily, my children, wanting their mum and that that barrier between the, t- the two of us had, had lifted and, you know, I really enjoyed being a mum. I mean, you don't enjoy it all day, every day. I mean, that's impossible. But the capacity, that gush of love and um, 
just yeah those the, those intrusive thoughts had gone and I felt capable I, I didn't feel like I'm a terrible mother and stopped isolating myself and started socializing and just changed my whole outlook it was brilliant the way you describe that makes it sound like the transition was very fast for you that it was a stark and a quick contrast absolutely oh definitely and I think because I'd been so low um, I'm lucky in that the medication worked for me and um, it wasn't just the medication because you can't sort of just take a tablet and sit back and say right I'm doing this <laughs> uh, this will help it was a combination of everything I was I was having therapy from both the psychiatrist and the psychologist and seeing my GP and family was checking in and I was eating better and because the medication started working, my sleep was improving. Yeah, it's work. It's work, but it's great work because, you know, at the end you look back and you think, I did it myself. Yes, the therapist was helping me challenge my thoughts, but I was getting in that car and going to the appointments. I was taking the medication. I was, you know, being remaining hopeful that this would work and, and pushing myself a little, I suppose. Yeah. And it sounds like it was hard work, but something that in hindsight, you're probably really proud of, right? And, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that it was an achievement in overcoming that uh, dark cloud, as you say, that was sitting on your shoulders. So, um, yeah, amazing. You spoke about jumping onto a mental health care plan as part of that whole process. Um, I'd be curious to know what your experience was like with that. Uh, Very easy. So, again, you've got to be honest. There's sort of a mental health care plan for me is like, a goal setting activity so you kind of um uh, we, we sat down with the gp it was 45 minutes i think and we sort of went through a few goals of what we'd like to achieve once i started seeing a therapist now i'd never seen one before and i didn't really know but all i knew was i wanted to recover from postnatal depression and i guess you know i wanted um those negative thoughts to go away i wanted to socialize more so i did have some some goals and they were realistic goals um and then you know you make an appointment with a psychologist it was I was lucky in that my psychologist were perinatal psychologists and I do recommend that I think having someone specialized in the field they know they've seen it before and they kind of know um how to challenge those thoughts so that was really helpful there is a little bit of a wait sometimes um with trying to get into a psychologist and that's why the beauty of of helplines such as Panda and Gidget Foundation and Beyond Blue, whilst you're waiting, you've got these free helplines that can, can you know, buffer you whilst you're waiting to get into the psychologist. But I, 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 I kept them up. I did them every fortnight um, rather than monthly and now it's sort of monthly and now it's sort of like a tune-up, tune I call it. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Josie, would you mind getting into the difference between psychologist and psychiatrist and how that all played out for you? Psychiatrist is a referral. It's not a mental health care plan. So they're both rebated by Medicare, but a psychologist, you get 10 sessions. With a psychiatrist, I, I received an indefinite referral so I can see a psychiatrist for as long as I need. Um, with a psychologist, they it, the thought is that you probably only really need 10 sessions and then you're okay. But what you can do is after that, that those 10 sessions have finished and I guess the thought behind, and this is my gripe and why I prefer it to have, for us to have 20 sessions, is because you get to the 10 sessions 
and you think, oh, I've just, I've just dug in. I'm, you know, I'm ready to go deeper. I'm ready. <laughs> you really need 20 sessions um, because then you're paying, you're out of pocket for the rest of the year. So if you use up those 10 sessions in three or four months, what do you do for the next seven months, eight months? So I think with COVID, the government extended that now to 20 sessions. Yes, it has. Yeah. And I'm hoping that it doesn't go back. I'm hoping because, you know, we had, I think it was 18 or 20 years ago. And then that they went down to 10. Silly. Oh. So um, mm-hmm. I don't know what year, but I'm sure there was a stage where we did have 18 sessions. I'm pretty sure. Um, but the thing is you go back to your GP after six sessions and you get a little check-in and then you get the four, the rest of rest of the 10 sessions, which is the four left. And so that's another great way to have a check-in with your GP. But, yeah, it would be great for us to get the 20 sessions and – you know, if you need need more sessions, you need them. There shouldn't really be a limit to accessing mental health care. Particularly not if it's, yeah, if it's for something so um, clearly manageable and treatable as um, perinatal anxiety and depression. Did What did you use your psychologist for compared to what you used your psychiatrist for and what different roles did they play? Mm. So with the psychologist, it was um, CBT, so cognitive behavioural therapy, we chose, we chose that method and it was just challenging all my thoughts. So I would go in and, and I'd be honest about how I was thinking and how I was feeling and then we'd have a discussion about it, maybe where are those thoughts coming from and they were challenged. And then, you know, sometimes I'd, I'd leave with some activities to do, a spreadsheet, not a spreadsheet but sort of like a, a bubble of where I sat and where other people in my life sat and and the relationships and what I, I needed to do to change and I guess work on myself, work on my negative um, self-deprecating thoughts. So thinking I'm a bad mum, not good enough to have the children. So all of those, it's, it's, it's a lot of work. It's hard because especially if you've, and again, I didn't realise, as I said, I had anxiety um, since I was a young child. And so those thoughts have been around for over 30 years and to sort of change them and not be so negative. Anxiety like that is a risk factor for developing perinatal depression and anxiety, isn't it? Absolutely. So you double the risk of suffering a mental health condition if you've got a pre-existing condition, which I didn't know I had anxiety. But I think screening has changed a little bit now, but they do ask if you've had a mental health condition before, which I would have said no. But screening has certainly come a long way in terms of the hospital setting and I think the GP. But And so with the psychiatrist in terms of uh, the therapy there, that was just medication management. So the discussion was around any side effects with the medication, um, a bit of CBT, but mostly about, um, you know, was the medication working? Did we need to go up? Do we need to go down? Um, how my sleep was, those sorts of discussions. Okay, so it sounds like it's a few years down the road from when you had your first perinatal depressive experience and when you identified the anxiety component to your mental health. So where are you today and how has this whole experience sort of shaped your current mental health landscape? My thing now, when I because I still manage my mental health now, I, I have um, generalised anxiety disorder and it's not curable so it's how we manage um so when i know it's going getting out of hand i think about symptoms 
and I think about how much it's impacting my daily life and how long. So for me, sleep is really, really important. I have to get up seven, between seven and nine hours a night. So if my sleep is impacted, everything else starts to fall. And so I think sleep is a big one. I think capacity to concentrate and focus and finish a task was another. Just that kind of adrenaline, it's, it just never dissipated. I didn't, until I was treated, I was living on adrenaline, just unhealthy. I mean, we need some anxiety because it's good for performance. You know, we all have a bit of anxiety, but it's once it gets out of hand that um, it becomes, you know, unsustainable. So I think that and just very negative framing and sort of doom and gloom kind of thinking. Um, but I think, yeah, anxiety have some general symptoms, but then they vary from person to person. Some people may live with anxiety and, as I say, it helps them function and, and their performance is peak. Some, it impacts them and, you know, they're not enjoying life. And we all should. We all deserve to have a good and healthy, happy life. Well, you get one go at it, you may as well make most of it, that's for sure. Mm. Um, we had a psychologist talk us through mindfulness as a treatment in managing anxiety, and she explained to us that your body has two different types of um, nervous responses. You have a sympathetic nervous system and a parasympathetic nervous system, and I think how I remembered at the time was parasympathetic is like a parachute. It brings you down. It's, it's the rest and digest. Um, and the sympathetic nervous system was the fight and flight. And it, someone who's anxious has their sympathetic nervous system running over time all the time, like a car engine revving to the max. And their cortisol levels, all their stress hormone markers are just through the roof. And so that uh, erodes a lot of things in your body. And it's, it's super unhealthy to have elevated um, stress hormones for a long period of time. I mean, it, it impacts pretty much everything in your life. And so she talked us through how mindfulness can be used as a treatment for managing uh, anxiety. Is it something that you looked at at all and have you used mindfulness in any way? Yes, definitely. So for me, I had to find what worked. And this is a hard one for someone that's anxious. When you hear the words mindfulness, it makes you even more anxious. Oh, why? <laughs> so you've got to find, I think because it's, for me, feeling anxious is safe. It's kind of my safety mechanism. So if I'm feeling calm, it's sort of like, oh, no, I have to feel anxious. Otherwise, um, something bad's going to happen. So the anxiety, the feeling of anxiety is feeding it, is feeding that, oh, yes, this is, this is what I should be feeling because something bad's going to happen. Whereas as soon as I relax, reality will hit and something bad will happen. So that's, so that's where my negative thought, I, I don't know, people might experience anxiety differently, but mine's kind of... So your job is to be anxious because while you're anxious, you're alert and you're protecting. And the moment you stop yes. being anxious, you drop your guard, you're no longer protecting. Exactly. It defeats the purpose. So you're telling me be mindful, but that's not helping my anxiety because my mind's not thinking clearly. Yeah. Because it's elevated. Yeah. So... So I had to counteract that and by gosh, that's why I say treatment is work. So what I found, it took ages. So meditation, I'm still not a hundred percent with, I find I've got to, if I'm listening to something, it's the voice, I've got to like the voice, otherwise <laughs> I turn off. And so, and there's so many mindfulness um, podcasts and techniques and 
But for me, it was yin yoga. That was my saviour. So it was recommended in one of my therapy sessions. They said, have you heard of yoga before? And I said, oh, I have. This was in 2014. And it wasn't, for me, it wasn't very popular back then. And I thought, yoga, don't, you kind of need to know what you're doing. You can't just turn up. And they said, oh, no, there's beginners and you can go in. There's no judgment. And that was so, so true. I, I turned up and I was so nervous. I sat at the back of the class and was watching everyone do their poses. And it was it, the, the I, I really, I can't put my finger on it, but the feeling inside the room is just love and acceptance. And, and to be honest, and after the first one, I fell asleep. So at the end, <laughs> um, you do <laughs> Shavasana and I, I, yeah, um, I fell there. asleep. <laughs> I had to be woken up and that was so embarrassing. I thought I can't go back. Uh, you know, and they said, this is normal <laughs> to be woken up is something. I said, I'm really, really exhausted. I haven't slept in years. And I thought that the, the capacity that it enabled me to, to fall asleep. And not only once I got home, I had a really good deep sleep. So it improved my sleep. It allows me to be more present. I, it also enabled me to practice gratitude, to be more grateful for the small things. Um, I found with anxiety, it's, it's sort of there's hardly anything to be thankful for because you you think the world's against you. Yeah. Whereas the flip side to mindfulness is so much gratitude and to be thankful for just just being. And so so for me it was yoga. So I don't know what other techniques there are out there, but for me it's yeah, specifically. Yeah. So Yin Yoga is that the one where you just basically hold like really long stretches? Yes. Yes. And you know what I was told that it was one of the hardest ones to do because of that for, for someone with anxiety, yin yoga. And I couldn't believe it. It was the one that I loved the most because of that. So you're holding poses for five minutes and what that allows for, it's great for blood flow as well. But um, the minute you get into the pose, all I'm thinking is, oh gosh, I need to get out of it. I want to get out of it. I want to stop. It's uncomfortable, you, you know, and that's like that flight or fright experiences get me out of this get me out of here so it's challenging that because i i'm having to stay for five minutes to process that really uncomfortable feeling and that desire to leave and stop it because i can i can just get out of the pose and I'm, I'm and i'm safe um but to say to hold in it what's coming up for me um you know i think i've cried a few times in yoga and that's been really healing as well um, yeah, come it, a lot of things come up. Maybe not even in that class. Sometimes days later. So yeah, so I really recommend it. I've done it once. Extended stretching positions and really deep stretching is tough. And the beauty about yoga is that some of the poses you can do at home. You don't necessarily need to be in a class. So there's one legs up the wall, and all you're doing is literally putting your legs up the wall. And just staying in that position. Josie, I don't know if I could get my leg anywhere near the wall. (laughs) You can't do legs up the wall? (laughs) No. Uh, What about child's pose? Yeah, it's my favorite. And Shavasana, the one where you're lying at the end, that's my favorite too. Oh, nice. When you've got the bolsters under your knees. Yeah. You know, and I'm so thankful that I found that. Um, Yeah, so as I say, I'm still working on meditation. It's something that I, I really would like to explore. I guess I'm not there yet, but um, but I, but uh, yeah, I'm 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 interested to learn more. So, you started smiling after PND as a blog. Tell us a little bit more about that, and tell us about where you want to go with that. Sure. 
as I say, it started out as a blog. So all it was was just putting up my thoughts and feelings, you know, in words and 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 posts and hoping people will read it and then do what they will with it. But since then, I've started these little workshops where I go into organisations and we we sit and have a chat about. I weave my story through through the workshop, but we also rather than me saying, okay, now when you see someone struggling, this is what you say. No, I want to hear about what people's thoughts and feeling or perception is about when they see some, someone struggling, how would you have those conversations? And we go around the room and hear about what people are comfortable saying and, and what they think they might do. And we nut it out together. So it's, it's quite bespoke. And I really love that it's interactive. We, we, we get a lot of toing and froing. I love your passion for this. What, what <laughs> is the right way to approach a conversation with someone whom you think might be at risk? I think um, I think open-ended questions are really helpful. And so I do love the are you okay? Because, you, you know, but at the same time, it's either a yes or a no. I think, can you tell me more about that? So you could say, so for me, it was, what was helpful was people observed things about me. And then, so the whole I'm worried about you, I love you, I, you know, I only want the best for you. Um, I've noticed, you know, you've probably been sleeping more than usual or, or you didn't eat a meal that day or I tried calling you and you, you didn't pick up. Um, you know, is there, is there anything I can do to help? Um, you know, I think having those open conversations to let the person know. And, and, and a lot of the time, it takes time. You'll, you, you might get faced with, I'm fine, everything's okay. Um, but keep nudging. Keep, keep chipping away because, and that is hard. A lot of people go into the silent mode because I think I don't want to tip that person over the edge. I've already checked in, but please keep trying from someone that's experienced it. When I, when I look back, I've always said to my friends, I really love that you sent me a text saying, you know, I love you. I'm thinking about you. And then they say, well, all I ever did was send a text. And I say, you don't realize how hope, hopeful and, and helpful that was because you made me realize that I am loved and I am needed and I am worthy. Yeah, of course. And those are some great questions to keep up your sleeve. I guess you, you just don't want to say the wrong thing, um, but it sounds like saying something is probably better than saying nothing. And I guess relying on the good faith that people will read the good intentions through your clumsy questions. Mm. So what, uh, one in five women uh, suffers from perinatal depression and anxiety, and one in 10 men. How did your partner go? Did he have any issues? So it's interesting that you say that. So he didn't have postnatal depression or any mental health conditions around the children, but apparently it's really common. So if, if your partner is experiencing mental health condition, then the statistics are higher for you. I guess he... I'm going to generalize here, but men are fixers. Yeah, <laughs> right, of course. What do we need to do? Yeah. <laughs> what do we need to do here? How do we fix this? You know, yep. what do I need to do? And it was just me saying, you know, I've got mental health professionals. I just need you to sit with me sometimes and just let me be, um, validate what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling, just being with. And that's sometimes it's really uncomfortable to be with someone who you love and, you know, who's, I mean, you know, smiley and, and happy and positive about life, who's completely lost all her colour and, and is so hopeless. 
Um, I know that that's hard to sit with, but if you can, if you can do that, but at the same time, you've also got to look after yourself. So Hugh reached out to his friends. So he had a support network and his family would reach in, um, drop a meal, um, making sure that he slept, he ate, he rested when he needed to, he had to take a break. But at the same time, being supportive, coming to appointments with me, obviously looking after the babies so I could shower. It's those little things, but it's not the fixing things. We're not there to fix. No one's there to fix. No friend or family. It's the mental health professionals. Um, that's yeah. their job. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, it, men do want to jump in and solve problems. And it sounds like you did a very great job at coaching him through how to respond. But also I think people feel like they need to do a lot more. You know, it's sort of like yeah. they don't realise that conversations, no, that's not enough. I need to tell me what what can I, I want to take it away from you. It's not yours to take away. This is something for me to do, for me to work on. But, uh, but I need you to walk with me, walk beside me, hold my hand, um, tell me I will get through this. But, and that it's absolutely okay if I don't shower that day and, and, and look all crappy, that that's okay. I'm still loved. I'm still needed. Um, and that's really, really powerful. Um, so people have to um, give themselves more credit that they are helping people. There, there are so many recovery stories out there and we don't do it alone. We don't recover in isolation, no way. We do it as part of a village. And part of a village is raising raising a child too. We're not meant to do all of this alone. And that's why I think COVID-19 has been so hard because it has felt isolating. You know, I, I'm a social creature. I need to be around people. I love touch. So, yeah, I've really, I've really found that difficult. And sometimes it's brought up those old feelings of postnatal depression, that, that sense of isolation. Um, and so the more we talk about it, the less, the less alone we feel. Okay, well, that's it for today. Coming up next, we talk about addictions. Turns out our brains are geared to get us craving things again and again, to the point of where it starts to impact our lives, relationships and health. Professor Dan Lubman, a professor of psychiatry and director of Turning Point, has spent his life studying addictions. Join us next week as we go for a deep dive to this dark place. If you've enjoyed this podcast today, please leave us a review and a comment. We read every single comment and it gives us a huge boost to keep going. It's also the best way for us to promote these conversations and make this podcast more discoverable. Thank you so much.